Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, Proverbs chapter 26, verses 1 through 12. Like snow in summer, or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds a stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. You see a man who is wise in his own eyes There is more hope for a fool than for him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 26, starting in verse 1. Proverbs 26, starting in verse 1. While you're turning there, let me pray for us, and then we will jump in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, uh, that you're good and that you're loving, and we thank you for your word that gives us wisdom, thereby we can uh, avoid uh, sinful foolishness and these kind of things. So we just ask that you would protect us, that you would guide us. We thank you for this time together, uh, and we ask that you'd bless it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are continuing a little jaunt that we're doing through the book of Proverbs, and then we're going to end up doing Romans first part of next year. And in the book of Proverbs, we've gotten to run, we've gotten to run into several different characters, Okay. So we met a lady, Lady Wisdom, who cries aloud in the streets and tells the simple to follow her and to follow biblical wisdom. And then we met a different character in Proverbs. We met the sluggard, who is told to look to the ant and to work hard. And we talked about how your work is worship. Whether you stay at home with kids, whether you go to a job, whatever it is, what you do all day is not just normal secular stuff, that it is a form of worship to God. And then we talked about last week a different character, the adulteress, the seductress, all right? She's got on just a little bit too much makeup. She's just a little too aggressive. She has a beautiful smile, but standing behind that smile is a forked tongue. And we talked about how to avoid the adulteress last week. And Jeff pointed out several things that that really what, what sin does is it promises pleasure and doesn't mention the pain that comes along with it. That what adultery, what sin does is it doesn't start with just adultery. Adultery doesn't just start with adultery. Adultery starts as you start going down that path years before that, when you're flirting with an old fling on Facebook or when you're spending too much time around the desk of your secretary or whatever it might be. And really, adultery begins even before that with not thinking of God correctly. That's why why the text would say the way to avoid the adulteress is to know biblical wisdom. It's by not finding our joy in Christ, not realizing that we're pure, not realizing that we're loved by God, that we start seeking out other things to numb the pain within us. We talked about that last week. Now today, we're going to meet a different character in Proverbs. We're going to meet the fool, okay? 
the fool. It's, a, it's an interesting, it's kind of a motley crew going on in the book of Proverbs, a lot of strange characters. Today we're going to meet the fool. Now, to explain the fool to you, I first need to explain to you about the time I had to repeat kindergarten, okay? Speaking of fools, let me talk about the time I had to repeat kindergarten, which by the way, is a true story. I failed kindergarten, okay? Think about what you have to do to do that, all right? It's just colors and shapes. So the teacher would come up and be like, Zach, this is a circle. Can you say circle? And I'm like, square. She's like, no, 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 no. Say circle. I'm like eating a tub of glue. Circle. And she's like, he's not going to make it. He's not going to, he's going to have to do this again. All the other kids are standing in line, ready to go to recess, facing the same direction. I'm the only kid facing the wrong way. And they just knew he's not going to make it. He's going to have to do it again. Okay. What happened was we moved from Texas. I was born in the Republic of Texas, amen. And so we moved from Texas to Georgia my kindergarten year, okay? And the ages at which you start school in Texas and Georgia at that time were different. So we moved to Georgia and I had to start in the first grade, but I hadn't finished kindergarten yet. So the teacher, and this is a very traumatic event that I remember well, the teacher asked me to read in front of the class and I didn't know how to read. So she hands me a book like Goldilocks and the Three Bears or something, and I'm gonna have to make it up. I'm just gonna wing it. You, you can tell I'm winging it because I keep like looking up at the students. And so I'm like, once upon a time, the dinosaurs were eating all the people and they're like, you're not reading. We know you're not reading. That's not Goldilocks and the Three Bears. So I had to go to what was called pre-first, which was really just a kind way to say, you're doing kindergarten again, all right? Now, I stand before you today as a kindergarten graduate, okay? <laughs> So I've arrived, I've, I've, I've hit my life goal. Uh, the rest of it is just coasting from here. Now here's why I tell you that story. That is not what Proverbs means by the fool, okay? This is really important to understand with what we're talking about the fool today. In the book of Proverbs, foolishness is a moral issue, not an intellectual issue. Did you get that? Foolishness, the way the Bible would talk about it, when the Bible talks about the fool or foolishness, it means neglecting biblical wisdom. It means walking in sin. Foolishness and sinfulness are almost synonyms in the book of Proverbs, okay? So if you're someone in here and you think, man, I'm kind of simple-minded, I don't feel like I'm very intelligent, you're not a fool, biblically, okay? If you're someone who doesn't have a lot of education, you're not a fool, biblically. The fool that we're going to see here, it's a moral issue. It's the person who spurns biblical wisdom, okay? So Jeff talked about last week how you have the simple man, and he knows the adulteress lives on this street, but as soon as he starts walking down that street saying, oh, I think I'll just walk through this neighborhood today, now he's walking in foolishness. Now he's walking in foolishness, okay? Additionally, it's okay to call people fools sometimes, <gasps> right? I know that the Gospels would tell us not to call your brother a fool. That's a different context. What that's talking about is not bringing hate, not name-calling, not being mean to your brother. We know that there are times you can call a fool a fool because the Bible does it all the time, okay? So this is not name-calling, this is not being mean to a brother, this is actually pointing out the person who walks in foolishness, who does not walk in biblical wisdom. You guys with me? Okay, with that definition of the fool, let's get into verses one through three. Verses one through three, you'll see as I read it, they're very similar. It will give two similes, and then it will talk about something related to the fool, okay? It'll say, like this, like this, is the fool. Like this, like this, is the fool, etc. So let's read it, uh, let me read it. Verse one, <clears throat> like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. <clears throat> Verse two, like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. What does that mean? 
Does anybody have that verse on the back of like a Christian t-shirt? No, verse two? We're gonna come back to verse two in a second. Look at verse three. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools, okay? Here's what this text is saying, starting with verse one. In the same way that it's unfitting, it's not right, it should shock you if it were to snow in the summer. In the same way that it's not right for it to rain at harvest time, which could ruin your crops, it is not right to give honor to the fool. The fool does not deserve honor. When you give honor to a fool, what you're doing is two bad things. One, you're setting them up as a paradigm. You're setting them up as a pattern for people to emulate and follow. Two, you're enabling them in their sin. You're encouraging them to continue in their sin, okay? Let me say it stronger. Stop making stupid people famous. That's what this text is saying. You do not give honor to the fool. That's not what you're to do. Let me, let me say it this way. Let's pretend that we went back 300 years, okay? Who would be the heroes of your society 300 years ago? If you had Twitter or Instagram three, 300 years ago, who would people follow? They would follow presidents, they would follow generals, they would follow professors, they would follow men of renown. Who do we follow today? Who do we lift high as the people to emulate, those that we give honor to? We do it to the fool. That is what we do in our culture. We exalt the, you know, I don't know, Paris Hiltons or Kanye Wests of the world and say, this is what we should be striving for. And the text is going to say, do not give honor to the fool. Do not give honor to the fool, okay? Let's look at verse three. We're gonna come back to verse two in a second. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Here's what this text is saying. If I have a horse, I don't know a lot about uh, horses, but uh, I do know this about horses. If I have a horse and it's not going the way that I want it to go, can I reason with the horse? Can I be like, hey, Mr. Horse, if A equals B and B equals C, A equals C, and so you should go this way. Is that gonna work? No, so what do you have? A whip. The horse is an unreasoning animal. You cannot reason with it, so you must force it to do what you want it to do. It only understands pain. It only understands discipline. A donkey, again, I don't know anything about donkeys, but I know that they are unreasoning animals. And so you have to have a bit or a bridle to force that donkey to go where it should go, where it doesn't want to go, okay? What this text is saying is that the fool is like an unreasoning animal. You cannot reason with a fool. They only understand pain, they only understand discipline. The book of Proverbs is very practical. It's just stating this as a fact. Listen, there are some people that are beyond reason, period. We don't like that. We like to think that everyone will be reasonable and everyone will listen to my argument. That's not how it works, okay? So if you're driving down the road, you've never seen a sign against drunk driving that says this, here are seven reasons why you shouldn't drink and drive. You've never seen that sign because you can't reason with the fool. What does it say? Drink, drive, go to jail. You won't understand the logic. Here's just the punishment if you do it, okay? That's how that works. You can't teach the fool. The fool spurns wisdom, and so the only thing the fool understands is discipline. They're not gonna say, oh, I probably shouldn't drink and drive because of this sign. What they're gonna see is a cop with a flashlight, and it says, going out tonight, so are we. And then they think, man, I don't wanna go to jail, right? They just have to understand through the discipline. Now, here's a great place where you get to see the unreasonableness of the fool, ready? On social media, on social media, okay? Do most of those debates and fights go well on social media? Just look anywhere, read the news, watch the news, read articles, go online, and you will see that there are some people that according to this text cannot be reasoned with. 
cannot be reasoned with. Let me give you a few examples. I took both of these off Facebook. These are real examples of actual debates on Facebook. You ready? Here's the first one. This is when uh, SEAL Team 6 killed Osama bin Laden. One guy on his Facebook, in all capital letters with an exclamation point, simply said this, Osama is dead. Somebody responded, wow, he was only the president for like a year. The first guy then responded, Osama, not Obama. The second guy responded, huh? The first guy responded, are you kidding me? He's the terrorist responsible for the 9-11 attacks. And the other guy said, never heard of him. I guess I need to watch the news more. That's an actual debate online. Do you think there's much hope for these two men discussing politics? No, right? Right, like a whip for the horse or a bridle for the donkey. Here's another one. A student posted this on, uh, on Facebook. <clears throat> My teacher is so dumb, he thought the sun was a star. <laughs> Somebody responded, um, that's because it is. And then the student said, no it's not. A sun is a sun, a star is a star. Saying that the sun is a star is the same as saying that a tomato is a fruit. That's right, it's not true. Okay? Not a lot of hope here. All right? Not a lot of hope for this. That's what Proverbs is saying. It's ancient wisdom that's even applicable today. It's saying that for the person who refuses to listen to wisdom, the issue is not logic. The issue is not reasonableness. There's a sinful brokenness in their hearts that doesn't want to be corrected. So the only thing they understand is discipline. Now, let's jump up to verse 2 again. <clears throat> what does this mean? Like a sparrow in its flitting, or like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. Okay, let's define some words real quick. Like a sparrow in its flitting. What is flitting? Flitting is where you dart about. It's what little birds do. Majestic birds, they soar. Little birds, they just kind of flit, okay? I walk down the halls. Tim Hollis, our worship guy, he flits, okay? He just kind of darts from place to place. That's what flitting is. The word alight means to come down and land. It means to come down and land. So here's what this verse two is saying. In the same way that a bird in its flying is not landing, if somebody pronounces a curse that is causeless, it will not land. It will not take effect. What does that mean? Okay, let's do a quick biblical theology of cursing. You ready? As Americans, when we think of cursing, we think of cussing. We think of like a four-letter word or we think of profanity, okay? Now, the Bible would speak against that. We're to, to let no unwholesome speech come out of our mouth, but that's not primarily what the Bible's talking about when it talks about cursing or blessing, okay? The idea of a curse in the ancient Near East was this, that if I pronounce a curse on you, I'm asking God to curse you. I can't make the curse happen. So if you steal some of my you know, sheep or whatever, and I say, may you have a short life and may your wife be barren, and I pronounce a curse, I can't make either of those things happen. What I'm doing is I'm saying, God, see that this person has wronged me, and please curse them for what they've done. That's the idea behind a curse. The idea behind a blessing in the Bible is the opposite. That if I see somebody and they've done good to me, and I say, may God cause his face to shine upon you, may he increase your crops, what I'm saying is, may God bless you. I can't make those things happen. So to curse somebody is for you to ask God to curse them in the Bible, and to bless somebody is for you to ask God to bless them. That's the idea of blessing and cursing in the Bible. Additionally, that's one of the reasons we're told not to swear oaths, because when you swear an oath, what you're saying is, biblically, if I lie, if I break my oath, may God curse me. That's a dangerous thing to say for a bunch of sinful people that don't know the future, okay? And so that's the idea. So here's the idea. A causeless curse is where someone would try to curse you when you haven't done anything wrong. They would try to curse you when you haven't done anything wrong. 
God's not going to honor that. God's not going to hear that. God's not going to curse if there's no reason to curse you. So all verse 2 is trying to say, it's a very complex, difficult way simply to say this, that a curse that has no cause is useless. It's, it's unfitting. In the same way, giving honor to a fool is unfitting. That's all that verse 2 is trying to say. Now, there might be an additional implication, which is this, that if a fool curses you, don't worry about it because God's not going to have it come to pass. If the fool curses you and gets mad while you're trying to rebuke or reprove the fool, don't worry because God's not going to honor that. It's a causeless curse. That's the idea of verse 2. Everybody still with me? Doing a little ancient Near East history? Let's jump into verse 4. <clears throat> verses 4 and 5 are fascinating. A lot of debate around these verses. Let's read them. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, how are we to understand this? Is this a contradiction? What's going on here? Here's the first thing you have to understand. You have to understand the genre of the book of Proverbs, okay? Does everybody in here know what a genre is? A genre is a type of literature, okay? So your math textbook is one type of genre. A love letter is a different type of genre. A uh, novel is a third type of genre. Historical narrative is a fourth type of genre. We, we have different styles in which we write. The example that I always used in theological equipping when we were uh, <coughs> going over how to study the Bible was, if I write a letter to my wife, a love letter, and I say, I love you so much, it feels like my heart hurts and I might die. And I write to my doctor a letter that says, it feels like my heart hurts and I might die. I've said the exact same thing in both cases. But the, the genre, a love letter versus a medical note, are, is very different, okay? Now, Proverbs is, wait for it, this is profound, a collection of Proverbs, okay? It's a collection of wise sayings together. And in the book of Proverbs, some of the wisdom that it gives you is 100% absolute all the time without exception. Other times, though, it will give you a general truth that's generally true. So some of the things Proverbs is going to say will happen 100% of the time. Other times, it's just meant to give you wisdom. It's going to say, generally, this is how the world works. Let me give you examples of both. Here's some examples of Proverbs that uh, are true 100% of the time. We're going to throw these up on the screen. Proverbs 11.1. 1. I think we've got, there we go. Proverbs 11.1. 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Now, that's not just a general truth. That's 100% all of the time. God always hates when you have shady business practices. That's what this text is saying, okay? Or here's another one, Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight, okay? So again, this is not a general truth. It's not that God sometimes hates lying lips. He always hates lying lips, okay? So these Proverbs, and there are several like this in the book of Proverbs, are always true. Now, there are some Proverbs, though, that are meant to be taken as general wisdom, they're not meant to be taken as 100% absolute all the time. Let me give you two examples of those. Proverbs 22.6. <clears throat> Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Has there ever been someone in the history of the world that's been raised in a godly household and ended up rejecting the faith when they got older? Yes. Does that mean this text is lying? No, because this text is giving you a generality. Generally, it's true that if you raise your kids in the faith, they will become Christians, okay? They will walk in righteousness. Generally, that's the case, but not always. Proverbs is telling you the way things generally work in this case. Here's another example of this. Proverbs twenty-two sixteen: 16. 
Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Okay? Is this text saying that there has never been somebody in the history of the world that has oppressed the poor and actually got wealthy doing so? No, that happens all the time. People oppress the poor and they get rich in so doing. Again, this is meant to give you general generalities. If you are involved in these kind of evil practices, generally God will not or you, you'll not see these things be blessed. I think that's kind of the idea, okay? Now, we need to keep that second type of proverb in mind for verses four and five. This text is saying, there is a time to rebuke a fool, and there is a time not to rebuke a fool, and you're supposed to know when that is based upon the situation, okay? There are times you'll hear somebody say something super stupid, and you should just let it go, okay? You should just let it go. Elsewhere, Proverbs will tell us, don't rebuke a scoffer because they'll hate you for it. But there are other times where you do need to rebuke a fool. The general rule here seems to be don't rebuke a fool, but he's not saying always. He's saying there are times you need to rebuke a fool. That's the point of verses four through five. You're supposed to know when and how to apply it. Additionally, I think the idea behind verse four is this. You should not be like the fool when you respond to the fool. If the fool brings up his argument and is cursing and all emotional and illogical, you don't respond by being cursing and emotion, uh, emotional and illogical, okay? So I think verse four is talking about the way you would respond to the fool, and verse five is talking about the content of responding to the fool. There are times, though, when somebody says something that's wrong that you do need to step in and say, that's not right, lest they be wise in their own eyes. Let me give you an example of this, okay. Let me give you an example of a time I responded to a fool in a foolish way. That's more fun than any time that I've responded to a fool in a righteous way. So let's talk about the failures. Okay, so I was taking a philosophy class and I got into a heated debate with another philosophy student. What do you think it was over? Do you think it was over something super like helpful? Do you think it was over something ethical or how we should respond in a capitalist society to whatever? Do you think it was deep and meaningful? We got into a heated fight, like hurt our friendship over this question, whether or not you can think of a unicorn. Okay? That's what philosophers do. If you've ever wondered, they fight each other and get mad and throw chairs over whether or not you can think of a unicorn. Okay? Now, what I was saying, and I was right, by the way, what I was saying is you can't think of something that doesn't exist or else how would you know that you're right? And he said, well, of course you can think of something that doesn't exist. I can think of a unicorn. And I said, how do you know you're thinking of a unicorn? You've never experienced a unicorn. What color is a unicorn that you're thinking of? You're not thinking of a unicorn. You're thinking of a horse, which you have experienced, and a horn, which you have experienced, and you're putting them together and saying that's a unicorn, but you're not really thinking of a unicorn because you can't think of something that doesn't exist. Okay? Additionally, it should be called a unicorn, not a unicorn, because it has one horn, not one corn. Okay? So that was like a sub-point of the argument. Okay? Now, is that the thing that's worth getting heated about. No, that's what verse four is saying. Don't be like the fool when you rebuke him. There are times to let things go. There are times to fight for things and there are times that are not. Now, conversely though, according to verse five, there are times where I've heard somebody say something that's not biblical and I have to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I love you, but what you're saying is not biblical and it's harmful. Here's what you need to see, okay? So there are times to let things go with the fool. There are times to rebuke the fool. Do not be like the fool in your rebuke. Rather deal with the content rather deal with the content. I think that's what's going on in verse five, okay? <clears throat> Verses six through 10. 
Now, before I read all these, verses 6 through 10 actually all seem to go together grammatically. They're linked by a bunch of what are called similes. Do you guys know what a simile is? A simile is just where you compare two things, okay? But you have to compare it at the right spot or else it won't make sense, okay? So if I say my wife is like a flower, that doesn't mean that like, uh, you know, bugs eat her and she makes me sneeze. It means she's beautiful. That's my point, okay? So in each of these similes, you're supposed to see the uselessness of the fool. That's what you're meant to see. Let me read these all together. Verse 6. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds the stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard. Okay? Here's what this text is saying. Everything the fool does becomes broken. Everything the fool touches becomes corrupted. You can't send a message by him or else he might misdeliver it or not deliver it or offend the person you're sending it to. You can't educate him because even if you give him, you know, this wisdom, he doesn't know how to use it properly. You shouldn't hire him. He ends up just hurting everybody around him. That's what it's saying, okay? It's kind of like this. There are certain people (coughs) that walk in biblical wisdom, and it seems like everything that they touch turns to gold. Meaning, everything that they do, it seems to be blessed. It seems to be successful, okay? Uh, Jeff Ashley, I think, is one of those guys. He is a guy, I'm not trying to do that to suck up to my boss, but he's the kind of guy that I've known for several years, and most of the things he puts his hand to, because he has biblical wisdom, because he knows the scriptures, they are generally pretty successful. I've seen him counsel people well. I've seen him lead meetings well. I've seen him preach well. I've seen him shepherd his family well. Generally, because he walks in wisdom, the things he touch are blessed by that. Jeff is a, well, I was about to say wise guy, but that sounds like he's uh, like in the mafia or something. He's a man who walks in wisdom, okay? The fool, and this is what this text is saying, the fool is the opposite. Everything the fool touches dissolves. Everything the fool touches fails because he doesn't walk in biblical wisdom. That's the idea of this text, okay? Now, on that note, I need to talk to you about Greek rhetoric, okay? Talk to you about ancient Greek rhetoric. Now, in ancient Greece, the ability to speak publicly was a highly valued skill, okay? If you were a rhetorician, you were probably a lawyer or a teacher or something like this. And in Greek thinking, there are three things that you have to be really, really good at to be a good rhetorician, to be a good speaker, okay? Those three things were logos, pathos, and ethos, okay? Logos means logic. You have to be able to make an argument. If you're going to be a good speaker, you have to be able to string together thoughts, okay? But you can't just be a talking calculator. You have to have ethos. I'm sorry, you have to have pathos. You have to have passion. You have to have emotion. You have to be able to work a crowd. You have to make people laugh. You have to make people cry. You have to make them hang on your every word. And then the last thing the Greeks said that you had to have to be a good speaker was ethos, ethics, morality. Because if you had the first two, if you were logical and you could move people's emotions, but you were wicked, you would move people in the wrong direction, okay? Now, what's interesting is if you were to ask our culture which of those three, logos, pathos, or ethos, logic, emotion, or morality, is the most important in making an argument, our culture leans heavily towards pathos. It leans heavily towards emotion. People just throw up their emotion and regurgitate their ideas, and that's it. What's interesting, though, if you were to ask the Greeks of which of those three was the most important, they would say ethos, the ethics. Because if there's something broken within you, everything else you put your hand to becomes corrupted. 
The reason I tell you that is because that's what's going on in these verses with the fool. It doesn't matter whether you send a message by his hand, whether you try to educate him, whether you give him wisdom, whether you hire him. Because he's broken, everything else he touches becomes broken. Okay? So let's walk through this just real quickly. Verse 6, whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Meaning, you don't know if he's going to deliver the message. You don't know if he's going to make that person mad that you're sending it to. You don't know if it'll even get there. Okay? Verse 7, like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Meaning... Even if you give the fool a piece of wisdom, they don't know how to use it. They don't follow it. They, they misapply it, okay? You ever heard somebody say, don't judge me? That's in the Bible. Don't judge me. What are they doing? They're taking some biblical wisdom, but because they're a fool, they're misusing that proverb. The whole Bible tells us how to judge one another. What they're doing is they're taking a place where Jesus says not to hypocritically judge, to take the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of somebody else's, and they're misusing it. Why? Because even if you give wisdom to the fool, they don't know how to use it. Verse 8, like one who binds the stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Here's the idea here. A sling in the Bible, don't think uh, like Dennis the Menace slingshot, okay? Don't think of like a rubber slingshot shooting it like that. A sling in the Bible is a pouch that you put a rock in and you have two strings like this, okay? And what you do is you swing that rock above your head. Now, for some reason, due to math, because it's on the outside of the circle, you, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how this works, I failed kindergarten, but as you're spinning around the circle, because the rock's on the outside of the circle, it goes faster than your hand. I don't know how it works, math is magic to me. And then you just let go of one string, and that rock flies downrange faster than if you threw it by hand, okay? I actually did this, by the way, when I was in high school. I cut part of a baseball glove, and I made a sling. And then I told my buddy, hey, why don't you run across this field? Nothing's going to happen. And as he was running, I was like, boom, and I hit him right in the ankle. And I was like, I'm David, you know, and it was, a lot of, it was a lot of fun. So, but what this text is saying is if you were to take that sling, and then you were to tie down the rock, you were to tie down the rock, it's absolutely useless. You're standing there precariously swinging this dangerous thing over your head, but when you let go like that, nothing happens. That's what it's like to give wisdom to a fool. Verse 9, like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. The, the Hebrew there is a little bit tricky. I actually think it should be better translated as the idea of a thorn going up into somebody's hand is the idea of that hand grabbing a thorn bush. The idea here, the picture here is the fool with a proverb is like a drunk man with a thorn bush just waving it around ready to hurt everybody. They're one of those guys that breaks the bottle of beer, you know, and they've got like the real sharp edges. That's kind of what the fool is like. And then verse 10 says, like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard, okay? They just take arrows and they just start shooting everyone, okay? I met guys like that studying theology. They're guys who do not love Christ. They're guys who in some senses are educated beyond their intelligence, and they get a little theology, and they use it to just start hurting people. They use it to just start hurting people. All verses 6 through 10 are saying is this. Everything the fool does becomes broken. Everything the fool does is useless. Okay? Verse 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Okay? Now, you know when I most think of this proverb, verse 11? Every time I go into a jack-in-the-box. <laughs> I think to myself, last time I was here, I thought it would be a good idea and it wasn't. But here I am again, hoping for different results. I'll have 13 deep fried tacos, please. You know, that's how I am. 
Here's what this text is saying. This is really important. So, so first of all, dogs in the ancient world aren't necessarily like we think of them today. So we, we generally like dogs. We think of them as pets. You do have them some as pets in the ancient world. You have them, for example, as guard dogs. You have them as sheep dogs. But generally, dogs are seen as kind of these gross animals because a lot of them in the ancient world, they just kind of run the streets. They're mangy. They eat trash. They eat dead things. They're seen as kind of these gross animals. And what this text is saying is, and I'm not trying to be gross. I know we're about to all go to lunch. This is just the Bible that when a dog vomits, the dog will oftentimes return to that vomit. Now, here's the point that it's making. Why does a dog return to its own vomit? Is it because of some, something outside the dog? Some sort of external social pressure? Is it because it had mean dog parents? Why does the dog return to the vomit? Because it's, there's something in the nature of a dog that goes back to this disgusting thing. Here's what this text is saying. There's something in the nature of a fool that's broken. The problem is not something external. The problem is not how they grew up. The problem is not their parents. The problem is not whether they were given a chance or not. That's not the problem biblically. The problem with the fool is that he is by nature a fool. That he is by nature a fool. That's the issue. That's the issue. The dog does what's in its nature and the fool does what's in his nature. Why does somebody who's had their life ruined by drugs go back to drugs? Why does somebody who's ruined their life through sexual morality go back to sexual morality? Why does someone who's ruined their life through getting drunk go back to getting drunk? Why does that happen? Because there's something broken within the fool that has to keep going back to that for the same reason that there's something in a dog that makes it go back to that vomit, okay? So let's do a quick biblical theology of our identity in Christ. This is important. Before you become a Christian, you are, and I was, this fool, okay? Imagine a telephone ringing. Before I came to know Christ, that temptation of the telephone ringing, that, that phone would ring. The temptation to commit sexual morality, the temptation to pride, the temptation to get unrighteously angry, whatever that temptation is, that temptation phone would ring. And before I came to know Christ, I had to answer it. It was within my nature to do so. I could let it ring for a while and try to resist, but eventually I would go and I would answer that temptation, okay? I would answer that temptation. If that phone, I didn't listen to that phone, a phone of a different kind of sin would ring, but eventually I would end up answering the phone because that was within my nature. Now listen to this. When you become a Christian, you repent of your sin, you trust in Christ, that phone will still ring. The temptation will still cry out, look at me. The difference is now you can say no. The difference is now because you have the spirit, you have the ability to say no because no longer do you have the nature of a dog. No longer do you have to go back to your vomit. It's still tempting, but you, your nature has changed. The nature of a fool is to do what's foolish because that's who he is. In Christ, we're given new life. We're given a new nature. The Spirit dwells inside of us, whereby we'll still fall into sin. You're never going to reach perfection this side of eternity. But for any individual sin that pops its head up in the middle of the week and says, you must commit me, you can say, no. No temptation has overtaken me, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, and he'll provide the means of escape, okay? What it's saying here is that the problem with the fool is not their education, their knowledge, rationality. The problem with the fool is their nature. What we need in salvation is a new nature, a new nature. Verse 12. Now, I love verse 12. Before we read it, I just want to say this, because this is a brilliant literary move that the author does. You've thought this whole sermon has been about the fool. The fool's bad like this, the fool's bad like this, don't be like the fool, don't hire the fool, don't hang out with the fool, don't have anything to do with the fool. But verse 12 is gonna say, gotcha. There's actually something worse than being a fool. Look at verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? 
there is more hope for a fool than for him. As bad as the fool is, this text says there's somebody who's worse than the fool. It's the person who's beyond critique. It's the person who's beyond being corrected. It's the person who's right in their own eyes. It's the person that you cannot rebuke, you cannot educate. They're just going to stand where they're going to stand. They've already made up their mind, their experiences shaped their life, whatever it is, and you cannot critique them. At least the fool sometimes realizes that what he's doing is foolish. The person who's wise in his own eyes can never see that because they're the standard, because they're the standard. Let me read, now, let me read you a bunch of passages. This is, in case you don't know, this is the issue of our day. All the things that we think are the issue are not really the issue. This is the issue in our culture. This is the issue of our day, that everyone does what is right in their own eyes, that everybody thinks that they are the standard of wisdom and they must be right and they are beyond critique and beyond rebuke, okay? All that is is just another name for pride. That's all it is to be wise in your own eyes. It's pride. Let me read you some verses where the Bible will tell you not to trust you. Ready? Proverbs 14, 12. <clears throat> there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Meaning, there are times where you say, this absolutely must be right. I know it in my heart of hearts. And it gets everybody killed. Okay? Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. Okay? Proverbs 3, 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Notice that to be wise in your own eyes means you're not listening to other people. Okay? Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. You can actually translate that first half, whoever trusts in his own heart is stupid. In a culture that would say, trust your heart. Be true to who you really are. The Bible's going to say, if you trust your heart, you're an idiot. That's what the Bible would scream. Okay? Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Why would you listen to your heart if you know that you're born broken and sinful? Don't listen to your heart when it's calling for you. Don't listen to it. 1 Corinthians 3.18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Meaning if you think you're wise, you think you've got it, lay that down so you can learn true biblical wisdom. 1 Corinthians 8.2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And then I love this, Proverbs 16, 25. It's going to say the same verse again. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Here's what the Bible is saying. Do not trust you, period. Trust anything but you. Trust the Bible, trust elders, trust church tradition, trust other people, trust logic, but do not trust you. You're the one person you're not allowed to trust, okay? That's huge. You are not allowed biblically to lean on you. You are not allowed biblically to trust you. Nobody has lied to you more than you. Nobody has made bad decisions for you more than you. Nobody has hurt you more than you. Stop running to that poisoned well to get water. We are broken. We are broken. Listen, we want to run to us because our feelings and our experiences are so loud. Your feelings will always scream louder than scripture. They're just a heck of a lot less true than scripture. Do not trust you. Do not trust your own heart. Do not trust what seems right to you. Trust the scriptures. That's what biblical wisdom means. If you say, but I think I'm right. Everybody does. That's what you have to lay down and put that down at God's feet so you can see what his word 
says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Now, on that note, we need to do a little philosophy. We need to, no, not unicorns, don't worry, a little philosophy. We need to talk about something called existentialism, and I'm gonna explain why this is important, okay? What we do when we read the Bible is we see what it originally says in its context, and then our job is to apply it to our lives today. So let me let you know how this applies to our lives today. For most of world history, we have believed that there is truth, and there is meaning, and there is purpose, and that precedes you. That comes before you. Before Zach Lee was born, there was already meaning, there was already purpose, there was already truth, there was already God's word. Truth preceded my existence. Truth came before my experiences and my emotions and my feelings. You with me on that? That's the view of most of Western history, okay? Well, there is a philosophical movement called existentialism, started with a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, mispronounced Kierkegaard, moved to a guy named Jean-Paul Sartre, mispronounced Sartre, moved to a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche, mispronounced Nietzsche. And what existentialism is, existentialism says that existence comes before essence. What they mean by that is, no longer is truth outside of you and you adapt your experiences around that, but now you're the standard. You determine truth, you determine meaning, you determine purpose, and you have to, if you have to mold truth to do that, go for it. Okay, so for most of world history, marriage was already a thing, and whether you had a good bad marriage or a bad marriage, your experience didn't matter, marriage was a thing. And being a dad was a thing, and whether you had a good dad or a bad dad, it didn't matter, there was a dad, okay? So there were standards of truth and ethics and purpose and meaning, and if your experience didn't line up with that, then change your experience. What existentialism says is the opposite, that purpose, truth, and meaning begins with you that existence precedes essence, meaning you are now the standard. Your experiences are what matter. You shape purpose, you shape truth, you shape meaning. And that is an unbiblical idea to the core, okay? I'll give you a few examples of this. When someone thinks that you can't critique them because you're not their same gender, that is existentialism. They're saying, I have an experience that you don't have and therefore truth cannot stand over us equally. Truth is an equal opportunity hater. Truth stands over everyone equally and critiques everybody equally. Nobody has a leg up on truth. Truth stands over everyone, okay? When someone thinks that you can't critique them because you're not their race, that's existentialism. Because you don't have my experience, you can't speak truth into my life. When someone thinks that they're an expert in every area, that's existentialism. Notice this, everybody seems to be an expert in everything. A new law is passed and all of a sudden it seems like everybody online has a degree in constitutional law, right? We assume that we're experts in everything. I saw a great sign hanging in the doctor's office that said, don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. Okay? That's that what we do is we do existentialism. Because I have these experiences, I must have equal truth with everybody else, even though I'm not an expert in this field. When someone appeals to their experience so that you cannot tell them what they are doing is wrong, that's existentialism. You have no idea over the years how many couples that I've had to sit down and say, you don't have biblical grounds for divorce, and they say, but you don't know how hard my marriage is. And I have to lovingly say, it doesn't matter my experience in marriage. I'm giving you Bible. We're not existentialists, we're Christians. You cannot be Christian and be existentialist, okay? When someone holds that whatever they feel is true, that's existentialism, okay? So if you, and I, I struggle with this in my own life, if you feel condemned, you assume you must be condemned, despite the fact that Jesus says that if you trust him, you're forgiven and loved you've fallen into existentialism. Or when somebody says, I know that I'm a boy, but I feel like I'm a girl, 
or I know that I'm a girl, but I feel like I'm a boy, therefore that must be true. That's existentialism. That is taking your experience and your feelings and saying, these must be true. Don't reshape truth around your feelings. Reshape your feelings around truth. When somebody says, I feel same-sex attracted, therefore I must be gay. When somebody says, uh, you know, uh, I've had a really difficult life, so society must be the bully. All of this is existentialism, okay? It's existentialism. When someone assumes that they're the most important thing, their rights, their freedoms, whatever's the most important thing instead of Christ, that is existentialism. Now, why do I go on a tirade philosophically about existentialism? Because look again at verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That's what that verse is speaking to. When you say, I'm wise in my own eyes, what you're saying is, I am the standard. I am above critique. I am above truth. It starts with me. It's a way to evade truth. Maybe here's a good way to ask the question. What issue do you hold, theologically, politically, or socially, that you're unwilling to change your mind on, even if you could be shown biblically that you were wrong? What issue do you hold, theologically, politically, or socially, that you're unwilling to change your mind on? You've just already set your position, even if somebody could show you biblically that you're wrong. That might be an area where you're tempted to lean towards existentialism, okay? What verse 12 is talking about is not some new sin. It's the original sin of man. It's the original sin of man. According to the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, okay? That's where you get wisdom, is fearing God. So what does it mean when Adam and Eve decide to eat of the knowledge of uh, the tree of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What they're doing is they're saying, forget God and forget his wisdom and forget his truth. I will be my own God and I will determine what is good and I will determine what is bad. That's why the devil says when you eat of this tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Meaning, not that they didn't know they shouldn't eat of the tree, meaning you'll become the determiner of good and evil. This is the chief sin of man. This pride, this autonomy, this I will be the determiner of wisdom, I will be the determiner of what's good and bad. And this text says there's more hope for a fool than for you. Now, I want to end with the gospel. I want to end with the gospel. So, here's what's interesting. Who is this fool? Who is this fool? Is this fool just our neighbor? Is it a mean guy I ran into at a gas station? Is it, who is the fool? Here's the thing. Before we came to know Christ, we are this fool. Before we came to know Christ, we are this fool. We are the ones who were wise in our own eyes. We were the ones who determined what we wanted to do. We were the ones who hurt people around us. We were the ones that were unfaithful when we were given tasks. We are the fool. And Jesus, as he's called in the New Testament, is the wisdom from God. And so what Jesus has done is though we have been a fool, we have ruined our life. We're like a drunk guy with a bow and arrow just hurting everybody. Jesus comes and he lives the perfect life that we should have lived, a life of wisdom, a life submitted to God's word. He dies on a cross because we deserve to die on a cross. I've rebelled against God. I'm the fool. I deserve slaughter. And yet Jesus pushes my head off the chopping block and he takes my punishment. He's raised from the grave showing that he is God's son. Sin has been paid for. He is the king. He's putting the world back to rights. Life is coming where previously there had been darkness and death. And if you repent and trust in Christ, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, will indwell your life, and he will transform you. He will change you from being one who's like a dog that goes back to its vomit, being someone who's lost in sin and therefore must go back to your sin. He will transform you to be one that can say, I'm not going back to that vomit. I'm not going back to that sin. That's the good news. What do I have to do to get it? How can I no longer be a fool, Zach? I feel like this is me. I feel like most of the things in my life that I've touched, I've just destroyed. Simply repent and trust in Jesus. Ask him to save you. Call him Lord. Cry out to him, and he will grant you pardon. You see, we're the fool of this text. It's not somebody else. 
If you know Christ, you're not. We're still tempted towards foolishness. We still have to say no to it. But this text is a great description of somebody who doesn't just lack biblical wisdom, but somebody who's out of a relationship with God. That's what foolishness is in the Bible. It's not funny, laughing, having a good time. That's okay. Foolishness, biblically, is sin. It's rejecting biblical wisdom. Let me pray for us as the men come forward to get ready to serve communion. (coughs) Father, we thank you for your word that convicts us, that rebukes us, that offends us. I confess that your word often offends us before it transforms us. And so we thank you for it. We thank you for sending Christ who has made a way uh, whereby we can be forgiven, whereby we can be spotless, where we no longer have to be fools, but rather can walk in biblical wisdom. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the book of Proverbs. We ask as we take communion now that this would be for your glory and for your honor. We know that you take fools and you adopt us into a household of wisdom. And so as we partake with our brothers and sisters, we're excited to do so. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.